As we prepare this morning, I invite you to stand as we read God's word together from John chapter 19. So let's stand together as we read. John chapter 19, verse 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier came to Jesus by night, came with a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen and cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where they where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray together. Father, as I have prayed many times this week, may you reveal your word to us. May you speak to us today. Lord, help us to know your ways, teach us your paths, teach us your truth, teach us for you, the God of our salvation. And we wait on you all the day long. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We find ourselves this morning in a rather interesting text, a text that in a lot of ways is often overlooked. Within the church, we tend to spend a great deal of time focusing on the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, and we should do that. But this morning, the text is a little different. And in many estimations, I think there's little attention given to this text because we don't know a tremendous amount about the characters that are mentioned. However, I think once we start to examine the text, and this is a transitional text, and we'll see that here shortly, hopefully we can gain some insight into what really happened during the burial. After all, the events surrounding the burial of Christ must have been important because they're listed in all four Gospels. Matthew chapter 27 and Mark 15 and Luke 23 and our text today in John chapter 19. They all speak of the burial of Jesus. But all four of them give us just a little bit of different detail, a little bit more insight to help us gain a little clearer picture of what was really going on. So let's look together in John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. After these things, well, if you think about it, that's a pretty broad statement. After these things, as we start, the first three words, after these things, 
There's a lot that has taken place. If you go back and if you've listened to Josh's sermon over the past couple weeks, you know there's a lot taking place in the life of Christ. John starts off after these things, probably referencing everything that has taken place from the Garden of Gethsemane up until now. To say that Jesus had a busy week is an understatement. Joseph of Arimathea, he's described as a rich man, a good and righteous man. He's be, he was respected in the community. Luke chapter 23, verse 51 says this of Joseph. Who had not consented of their decisions and actions, and he looked for the kingdom of God. Now, according to this verse, Joseph didn't agree with the council's decisions concerning Jesus. It appears prior to the crucifixion that Joseph, as well as Pilate, didn't really agree with how the council made their decision. But we'll look at that just a little bit more in a few moments. Notice also what, how John describes him. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, but secretly, because of fear of the Jews. Joseph was a secret disciple because he was a member of the council. Mark and Luke both tell us that. We don't know when Joseph first heard Jesus preach or teach or when he had his first encounter with Christ, but clearly because of the way this is written and the way the other gospel writers write, he had to have had some prior encounter with Christ to be considered a secret disciple. Now remember, a disciple is learning from a teacher in order to pass on this learning to others. It's a very simplistic definition. So some prior understanding of what Jesus taught had to be understood by Joseph. It's also interesting that the other gospel writers either call Joseph a disciple or at least refer to him as one looking for the kingdom of God, which was clearly no secret to the other gospel writers. As we continue to explore and look at some of the background of this text, we see that Joseph asked Pilate. As we talked about just a few minutes ago, Joseph had access to Pilate that other people didn't have. He was a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, and in all likelihood, Pilate would have known who Joseph was. What's interesting is that Pilate knew that he was doing something unusual. Pilate knew that Joseph and him coming to him, this was unusual. And we also see that because Pilate knew who Joseph was, he may have known in advance that Joseph didn't agree with the council. Joseph comes to Pilate to ask for the body of Christ that he might take away the body. 
Mark 15, 44 tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already been dead. This is an interesting statement because what it helps us to see is that according to other historical accounts, those that have been crucified could have lived for many more hours than just six, as Christ did on the cross. Mark 15, 44 goes on to say this about Pilate. He summoned the centurion and asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Interesting word. We've heard the word corpse before, but it's the only time in the burial account that we hear the word corpse. Mark is the only gospel writer to use the word, even though in the context of Matthew and Mark and John, we see the word body clearly speaks of the dead body of Jesus Christ. Also, let's be clear at this point. The centurion, an officer in the Roman army, he knew what death looked like. He was a professional executioner. He knew Jesus was dead. It's important for us to know that Jesus is dead. If Jesus doesn't die, then there can't be a burial and there can't be a resurrection. From all outward appearances, Jesus was dead. And after the spear was jabbed and to his side and blood and water come forth, Jesus is clearly dead. When Pilate realizes this, he gives Joseph permission. Pilate ordered that the body of Jesus be given to Joseph of Arimathea. Permission that Pilate gave was, again, highly unusual because bodies of the dead typically weren't given to people that weren't relatives much less given to a highly respected member of the Sanhedrin. It's not stated, but this had to be confusing to Pilate. Why would Joseph want the body of Jesus? However, given the statement made in Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 and 25, where Pilate literally washes his hands prior to the crucifixion, He must have been figuratively washing his hands after the crucifixion now. So Joseph leaves. He leaves Pilate's presence. He came and took away his body. Joseph has made his way back to Golgotha because of what we can infer about him knowing that he's respected and he's a secret disciple and he's good and righteous and on top of all that, a member of the Sanhedrin, I think it's easy to see that he was not the type of man to draw attention to himself. Even though as a rich man, people would have known who he was. But Mark chapter 15 verse 33 in this burial account says this. 
that it took courage or it took boldness for Joseph to go to Pilate. Even though it was probably somewhat of a private conversation that they had. Now we see Joseph of Arimathea, a man who we know little about and from a place that we know even less about, standing at the foot of the cross where Jesus hangs. A man, in my estimation, who stood in the background as a council member, not wanting to draw attention to himself. He now has countless eyes looking at him as he begins to take the body of Christ from the cross. Again, we're given very little detail as to how Joseph got Jesus down. We're not told if he had any help. No doubt he must have had a little bit of help, but it's it's pretty dangerous to speculate um, on this account. I think the focus here was on who was given the permission and not so much how... It was done. Regardless of how it happened, Jesus had to be removed from the cross. His body prepared, placed in a tomb, and it all had to be done rather quickly because the Sabbath was approaching. Verse 39, Nicodemus also Nicodemus. The only time we hear about this man named Nicodemus is in John's Gospel. John refers to Nicodemus as a Pharisee and a member of the council and as a teacher. In John 3.3, Jesus made it clear to Nicodemus that you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Again, what's interesting about what Jesus says to Nicodemus about seeing the kingdom of heaven is that's the exact same words that Mark and Luke used to describe Joseph of Arimathea when they say that he's looking for the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus who earlier had come to Jesus by night the idea of Nicodemus coming to, coming at night suggests that he was probably timid. But I think it also pictures his spiritual state of darkness and sin. Jesus clearly taught the gospel of light to Nicodemus, which we'll look at in just a few moments. No doubt the fact that Nicodemus was a teacher would have led him to study and learn more about who Jesus was and in greater detail understand the entire Old Testament. Nicodemus was a teacher but primarily taught the first five books of the Bible. The detail about Nicodemus coming at night also points to the fact that this is the same Nicodemus that came to Jesus in John chapter 3. John wanted to be crystal clear about who this was, even though we don't hear any other names of Nicodemus in the Bible 
we know there are many names that are repeated, Joseph being one of them. There's a lot of famous Josephs in the Bible. But Nicodemus came. He was bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. The ingredients of the mixture used here were primarily to mask the odor, the odor of a dead body. It was sticky when mixed together and would hold the linens close to the body. Now, the amount mentioned here is important, and I realize that in other translations and maybe even one that you're reading today, it may have a different weight. Is this a contradiction? I don't think it is because of one key word that's mentioned, the word about, about, about 75 pounds. And I think also spending time debating on the actual amount would lead us to miss the real point. The point is that it was a large amount And this large amount, this large amount of myrrh and aloes, this mixture that would be used on Christ, was the same amount of people of prominence, how they would be buried, of royalty, and even more specific, kings. Make no mistake, the king of kings was being prepared for a royal burial. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus. The word they only seems to refer to Joseph and Nicodemus. It seems that they were the only two preparing the body of Christ. Again, not a lot of detail was given to us. And in fact, the other three gospel writers only refer to Joseph at this point. They don't mention Nicodemus at all. They bound it in linen cloth with the spices. The myrrh and the aloe, the mixture that Nicodemus had brought, would be placed in between the strips of linen and the body of Christ, and the cloth would be wrapped around him, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, at first glance, this statement might not seem significant, but just like all other biblical text, it was written for a reason. The burial customs of the Jews were very, very different than those of the Romans or even the Egyptians. Following a crucifixion, Jewish families could take the body and give it a proper burial, as Joseph and Nicodemus were doing. Romans were just a little bit more crude. They would remove the body from the cross and throw it in a large pile of other bodies from previous crucifixions. Egyptians, the Egyptians embalmed their dead. 
clearly based on the time frame of the events to follow. There was no time to embalm Jesus. There was no need for it. He wasn't going to be there that long anyway. Joseph and Nicodemus did exactly what God wanted done. Verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. John is the only gospel writer to speak of this garden. But John's wording here refers to the tomb being in the garden near the place that Jesus was crucified. The nearness of the tomb would be helpful because time would be of the essence to make sure everything was done properly for Jesus' burial prior to sunset when the Sabbath would begin. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. The tomb is referred to in the other Gospels as being new or where no one had laid their head. This is important and significant for a number of reasons. New tombs are typically reserved for kings. Another reason is that Just to be honest, after some time, if a body had been placed into a tomb and after it had been decomposed, the tomb would be entered, the bones would be removed, and the tomb would be reused. Matthew tells us that this tomb belongs to Joseph, which makes sense according to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9, where it says... And they made his grave with the wicked, speaking of the Romans, and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. A lot of prophecies are being revealed in Isaiah. This one speaks that because there were plans... And if Joseph hadn't stepped forward, who knows what would have happened to the body of Christ. But a rich man, Joseph, a rich man, steps forward. Ask boldly, with courage, for the body of Christ. Verse 42. So because the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So what is this day of preparation? It was a day prior to the Sabbath when food was prepared and work was completed and local shops would be closed and no doubt there was a lot of activity going on. Aunt Joseph and Nicodemus would have been motivated to finish their work before the Sabbath, there was even a more significant reason. Jesus needed to be buried. 
and he needed to be buried while it was still Friday. So he could be in the tomb for three days, part of Friday afternoon, Saturday, and Sunday morning. In his burial, as well as his death, Jesus orchestrated all the details to accomplish God's already revealed purpose. So now that we've looked at the background, how can we take all this and better understand what God wants us to know? It's been said that there's two ways that God operates supernaturally. How he operates supernaturally in the world. Miracles and providence. And what we have in the burial of Christ is a picture of God's providence. God's providence has been defined like this. Providence is an old theological word that is used to explain the fact that God accomplishes exactly what he plans, purposes, promises, prophesies, and does it without interrupting or, with, or without suspending, without overturning that natural course of things. He does it by pulling together and orchestrating all the free behaviors of all people, all contingencies, all events, all actions, and all reactions. In all reality, God's providence is, is a greater power than even a miracle. In other words, God is sovereignly in control of everything at all times and all places so that his perfect plan can take place at just the right time. In this case, God used men, circumstances, situations, physical emotions, and everything else and blended them together in perfect harmony to fulfill prophecies and provide every physical element needed for a royal burial of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's look back at the text just for a moment, but not from a background point of view, but from a providential point of view. Let's look back and see how God used the events of this account providentially to make everything fall into place. At what could be argued as the most pivotal point in human history, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, God used two very unlikely men to fulfill his perfect plan. Again, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels, but again, only when it comes to the burial account. We never hear from him any other time prior or after. And Nicodemus is only mentioned in the book of John. When we think of how little we know these two men and the significant role that they are placed in with the events of the burial, we have to think, where's Peter? Where's John? Or any of the other disciples that have walked with Jesus by his side for the last three years, where are they? Because God is omniscient, he knew what was going to happen. 
He knew exactly what was going to happen. God chose to use secret disciples to fulfill his plan. But God, doesn't God use insignificant people all the time to accomplish his task? He used unlikely men to serve in mighty ways. They were at the right place at the right time to fulfill an enormous task. These two men used their social status in harmony with God's providence to successfully complete the task of the burial of Christ in a short amount of time. As we've talked about over the past few weeks, several Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. Within the events of the burial, yet another prophecy was fulfilled. And we mentioned it a minute ago from Isaiah chapter 53. God had a plan to use a rich man's new tomb as a perfect place for Jesus to be buried. And you know, if you think about it, Jesus rode into town on Sunday on a new colt on which no one had ever sat. And now on Friday, he's placed in a new tomb in which... No one has ever been laid. Both of these events picture Jesus as the king. Another way that we can see God's sovereignty at work was with Joseph. Joseph going to Pilate. Joseph as a timid, respectable man of the council went to Pilate with courage and asked for the body of Christ. Putting myself in that place, I would think, I would expect that to be a very disastrous conversation between myself and Pilate. But as we can see, it was pretty smooth. This too helps us to look at the fact of the time constraints of the events and the fact that Joseph had to get back to Golgotha take Jesus down from the cross, prepare his body with the linens that he had purchased, the myrrh and the aloe that Nicodemus had provided, and to seal Jesus in the tomb before 6 p.m. The linen and the myrrh and the aloes, the prepared tomb, all in close proximity to the crucifixion site, are all part of God's providence. The fact that the Sabbath was fast approaching meant that the work day was coming to an end, and it was coming to an end very quickly. The linen, while it must have been expensive, was no problem for a rich man. Even though it may have been hard to find, Joseph had it. Did Joseph purchase it in advance? If he did purchase it in advance, did he know why he was purchasing it? Did Nicodemus have the myrrh and the aloe in advance? Why did he have so much? Providentially, he had enough ingredients fit for a king. And we haven't even talked about the tomb yet. Why, was, why would a rich man's tomb be so close to the site of the crucifixion? You would think that he, as a rich man, would have the money to be able to put his tomb 
far away, far away from the sight of the crucifixion. A more secluded location. But since it was so close, why hadn't it been used up till now? Again, providentially, Joseph had had a tomb built. So many questions surround the events of the burial, and yet so many answers are unknown. Or at least they're unknown to everyone but God. Just like an arrangement of music with all its timing and tempo, and each note has to be played perfectly for a beautiful song, God orchestrated his plan in perfect sequence to make every detail of the day fall into place. Even with all the resources that Joseph and Nicodemus had at their disposal, these two men, these two mere men, could not have pulled this off without God working providentially. Another thing that I want us to see from this text that works perfectly with the providence of God is the humiliation of Christ. When we talk about the humiliation of Christ, we mean His incarnation, His suffering, His death, His burial. In His incarnation, Jesus became flesh. We see that in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his suffering, through his rejection, through his betrayal, through his arrest, through his trial, through his scourging, through the crown of thorns, through his crucifixion, through the piercing of his side, we see his suffering and that only speaks of very little of his suffering. In his death, we have seen these things leading up to Jesus hanging on the cross and crying out, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in his burial, it's everything that we've talked about so far this morning. What we have at this point is a divine transition from the humiliation of Christ to the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ has four aspects. His resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his session at the right hand of God, and his return in glory and power. We'll not get into those details today. From the background we have explored earlier that leads us to the providence of God and the humiliation of Christ. The final thing that I want us to see this morning is this. The complete conversion of men. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus literally were confronted with the cross of Christ. And they were changed. But for these two men, one secret disciple and one that comes to Jesus at night, both fearing so many things. 
both fearing man more than God. One man goes to Pilate with bold courage. The other joins him. They put their lives on display at Calvary for all to see. It appears no longer that these men fear man, but they have a holy fear of God and a love of Jesus that they couldn't explain. And as I prepared this week, I thought to myself, I wonder when these guys both got up that morning, did they expect the events of the day to go as they did? How could anyone explain the unexplainable? Now, because we have just a little bit more background on Nicodemus than we do Joseph, I want to shift our focus on Nicodemus. Let's back up, back up to John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher, and yet doesn't understand the truths of the gospel, at least not yet. What's important for us to see is that Nicodemus was a seeker. He sought out Jesus. John 3, 2, this man came to Jesus. Nicodemus had no doubt heard of Jesus, and now he's found him. And he comes at night. This could be for a couple of reasons. One, he didn't want to get caught. He didn't want anybody to see him. Or maybe it's because he wanted to have a private conversation with Jesus. Nicodemus goes on to say, we, he uses the word we, we want to know, which has to be assumed that Nicodemus and at least one other Pharisee, or that he was representing a larger population of the religious leaders, all of them that would have acknowledged the fact that Jesus was a teacher and that he had come from God. But one thing you've got to notice here is that Jesus answers a question, yet Nicodemus didn't ask one. And Jesus was blunt. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, Jesus repeats himself again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The water that Jesus is referring to is not literal water, but a spiritual cleansing. Once again, verse 7. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, your focus, your focus is on physical birth. And you need to be focused on spiritual birth. A birth that is from above. Not a birth that is from below of human efforts. One commentator makes this observation. Just as two parents are used for physical birth, so two parents, if you will, 
the spiritual for the spiritual birth, the Spirit of God and the Word of God that we see in First Peter one, chapter twenty three through twenty five. The emphasis in John chapter three is on believing because salvation comes through faith. Ephesians chapter eight, chapter two, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It has been said that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in chapter 3, and as Jesus continues to explain to him that he must be born again, it still appears he's in the dark concerning these truths. As we said a few moments ago, Nicodemus was a seeker. Matthew and Luke both record accounts of Jesus' teaching that whoever seeks will find. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us that he rewards those that seek him. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, verse 50 and 51, even though Jesus challenges Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus still defends him. Nicodemus might not have had all of his answers yet, but he was still seeking. And he continued to seek Jesus all the way to the cross. And at the cross, Nicodemus found the man, the great teacher of God, the one at whom the Old Testament had prophesied would come the one that would come as a sacrifice on a tree, the one who came to seek the seeker and to save the lost, the one who came to show how a real king rules, the one who came to be a servant for all, the one who came to be the perfect man, and therefore the perfect sacrifice, the one came to show he truly is the Son of God, the Savior of seekers. My friends, there's hope for us. Because of the thief on the cross, we have hope. Because of the centurion at the foot of the cross, we have hope. Because of the secret disciples removing Jesus from the cross, preparing his body, providing a proper burial, we have hope. These individuals and many more were seekers. They all found far more than they expected. They found Jesus Christ. Today I ask you, are you truly a seeker after the Savior? Or are you a secret disciple like Joseph or Nicodemus waiting to see what's going to happen next, in fear of standing out in the crowd. These, these two men were part of a small group, and they had a small part in history, but I do wonder how much more they could have done for the cause of Christ had they been bold 
and courageous just a little longer. I encourage you today, seek the Savior, serve the Savior, and tell all that He has done. Let's pray together.